The Digital Future of Rhetoric and Composition. Future. Rhetoric. The Digital. Composition. Can I be honest? The last year has not made me optimistic about my ability to offer bold proclamations about the future of anything. Nine months ago, I didn't know what a coronavirus was. Five months ago, I wouldn't have been able to tell you I'd be teaching remotely for the duration of the coming academic year, though I might have had my suspicions. A week ago, I still couldn't have predicted what some of the policies would be in courses that I will start teaching tomorrow. In the midst of the unpredictability wrought by COVID-19, I've kept up with my work for the most part. I got my spring courses across the finish line. I taught a summer class. I started advising some of the majors in my department. I prepped for the fall semester, dramatically redesigning a couple courses I usually teach face-to-face -face and prepping another course I've never taught before. I took on a new administrative role with a professional organization, put out a couple podcast episodes, did some committee work, and replied to a massive pile of emails. I don't say any of that to brag. I've done a great deal less than a lot of other people. I just say it to highlight the fact that, like many of you out there, the day-to-day -day work of teaching, institutional service, and mentoring in the midst of a pandemic took up pretty much all the bandwidth I had to spare this summer. I hope the part of me that has cogent scholarly ideas, including savvy predictions about the future of the discipline, is still in there somewhere but it's currently buried under a stack of pro tips for using Zoom and an amorphous pile of anxiety about hitting a bunch of upcoming deadlines. So what have I been doing in the moments when I haven't been working or thinking about work the past few months? I've gardened. I've baked bread. I know, I know, please forgive me for my basicness. And frankly, I've watched a lot of TV. I'm talking about familiar TV. I'm talking about shows I've already watched once, twice, three times, shows where I know the rhythms and know what to expect. Among other things, I'm talking about Adventure Time. For listeners who are unfamiliar, Adventure Time is a cartoon set in an earnest Technicolor post-apocalypse. It's a world where anthropomorphic cinnamon buns and princesses made of bubblegum exist alongside cute little robots who solve noir-inspired mysteries all while the psychological, paranormal, and radioactive fallout of a 1,000-year-old nuclear war seethes in the background. In what might be my favorite episode of the show's 10-season run, we get an extended flashback to the immediate aftermath of that war. Two survivors wander the wasteland together, a middle-aged scientist named Simon and a young girl named Marcy. They scrounge for food and try to avoid strange, oozing creatures that roam the world's ravaged cities. One night, after setting up camp, Simon spies an abandoned TV sitting nearby. The screen is busted out, so he ducks behind the TV's empty shell to put on a little show for Marcy. Specifically, he puts on a loose rendition of an episode of Cheers. It's ah, gonna be good. It's gonna be worth it. Use the remote to turn on the TV. Do, 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 do. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Sometimes you wanna go where everybody knows your name. What is this? 
Film before a live studio audience. <laughs> Norm! Mute. We find out Simon possesses a mysterious crown that, when worn, grants him arcane powers, but also causes him to forget who he is, turning him vengeful and delirious. Marcy begs him to stop wearing the crown, afraid he'll forget himself entirely. But when the two are cornered in an alley by a horde of the oozing creatures, Simon dons the crown in an attempt to save Marcy. As he unleashes the crown's powers, he sings the Cheers theme song in an attempt to keep himself grounded. I'm sorry, Marcy. Simon! You have to keep it together, Simon, for her. Simon, you promise. Dun, da 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 dun, dun. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't it be nice to get away? Where everybody knows your name. Where everybody... Even after seeing that scene over and over again, even watching it out of context as I was working on this podcast, I still tear up. But, more to the point, this weirdly emotional episode of this weirdly emotional cartoon got me thinking, weirdly, about the digital future of rhetoric and composition. In the current moment, sometimes it feels like the digital future of rhetoric and composition is pantomiming a program that no longer exists from behind the husk of a busted-out TV. Sometimes it feels like the digital future of rhetoric and composition is using a new arcane technology we don't fully understand to do right by those we're supposed to care for, without letting that technology inadvertently pit us against them. I'm thinking about all of this against the backdrop of the ongoing pandemic and the uncertainty and precariousness it's brought to bear on the already hollowed out shells of public colleges and universities in the United States. In that context, the spring semester feels like the distant future. October feels like the distant future. Next month, next week, tomorrow? So much will have changed by then. So many decisions will have been made and will have needed to be made. In this context, who am I to pontificate about what the future of a technology, a discipline, or a single first-year writing class will hold? What I can wrap my head around are things like this. Designing my courses with as much flexibility as possible for students whose presence and futures are in flux. Financially, technologically, rhetorically, educationally. Not using Turnitin, which is arguably the arcane crown of higher education, to check for plagiarism. Not requiring students to turn their video on in our course's virtual meetings. I can try to create small, immediate futures in which the current crisis doesn't result in the digital surveillance of students becoming something we take for granted. This is a hopeful task and an anxious task. It's knowing when to put on a show with busted out old tech and when to use or not use the powerful new tech whose implications we've yet to fully grapple with. All the while trying not to get overwhelmed by wondering whether public universities as we know them will still exist by the time I retire, or whether retirement will still exist by the time I retire, or whether I've only been watching a lot of Adventure Time to keep myself from wondering whether retirement will still exist. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Where was I? 
Here's one thing I have to say about the digital future of rhetoric and composition. It is happening right now. As we make careful decisions about what digital technologies to bring or not bring into our courses and use or not use to engage with our students. It's happening as we deliberate about the ways these technologies get enshrined in or excluded from our institution's standard operating procedures. It is happening. And my hope for the future, which is not one I'm feeling especially optimistic about, but is one I am trying to work toward in small, manageable ways, is that we can learn to use these technologies to care for each other, rather than suspect and surveil each other. In this sense, how I'm feeling about the future is a little bit like another scene from Adventure Time. This one from the series finale. That episode finds a swath of heroes and former villains from across the show's run uniting to fight a group of horrible cosmic creatures who've descended upon their world. In their first attempt, they get trounced, and the home of some of the show's most iconic characters is flattened. But in the wreckage of that home, two of those characters find each other, and one of them, a small robot named Bimo, begins to sing a song of comfort to the other. Time is an illusion that helps things make sense. So we are always living in the present tense. It seems unforgiven when a good thing ends. But you and I will always be back then. You and I will always be back then. Singing will happen. Happening happened. Will happen. Happening happened, and will happen again and again. Cause you and I will always be back then. You and I will always be back then. I guess that's a long way for me to go to basically say, the future is now. Will happen. Happening. Happen. But at the moment, that's how things feel. Like we're already living in a strange, post-apocalyptic future. Like we're still living in a past that should be long dead and gone. But we are always living in the present tense, in the time we have to shape the future that will be present later. The digital future of rhetoric and composition is this afternoon, when I send an email to the students in my fall classes, introducing them to some of the technologies we'll be using. The digital future of rhetoric and composition is Tuesday, when I'll set aside some time in our inaugural Zoom meetings so students can deliberate about how they want to approach and structure various technological elements of the course. The future is unimaginable, and it's already here. Keep singing! Okay. Will happen. Happening happened. Will happen. Happening happened. And will happen again and again. But that isn't the end of it. The finale of Adventure Time is, like the end of a lot of TV shows, partly a meta-commentary about the end of the show itself. It's a hopeful but also melancholy reminder for fans that this beloved thing is coming to an end, but the experiences people had with it will continue to shape their present and future, are still with them, in a sense. There's a possibility, then, that my connection of the show to the future of Rec Comp will suggest that our task is to hang on to the discipline's nostalgic, rosy past and let that be what inspires us to shape its bright future. But the pandemic and the fear of loss that it spurred has, of course, only been one part of 2020's clear and present dystopia. 
There has also been the ongoing racist violence that, while not new in and of itself, helped launch a wave of protests against and reckoning with systemic racism. And our colleges and universities are fully imbricated in that systemic racism. We can't gloss that over with a touching song. If part of the challenge of the field's digital future will be trying to hold on to some of the already tenuous structures that were in place before the pandemic, a modicum of public financial support, some degree of trust between teachers and students, Another part will be moving on without letting nostalgia for some of what was subsume the injustices and inequities that are part and parcel of rhetoric and compositions past and present. The power of that nostalgia makes me think of a letter, published in 1963, that James Baldwin wrote to his nephew. The letter contains this passage, which is about integration. People find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger, in the minds of most white Americans, is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would be frightened because it is out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. Well, the black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar, and as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. Baldwin has been on my mind a lot in 2020, but especially over the course of the past week. You see, I, I was watching TV again, this time a new show, Lovecraft Country, which as of this recording premiered less than a week ago. The pilot episode opens with black and white footage of a young black soldier fighting in the Korean War. But as the scene unfolds, it grows increasingly bizarre. Bright colors start to creep in, and suddenly there are monstrous creatures and alien spaceships on the battlefield. For all their differences, the beginning of Lovecraft Country looks surprisingly similar to the final episode of Adventure Time. Except this time, the young soldier isn't saved by the power of song. He's saved by Jackie Robinson, who smashes a Lovecraftian monster to pieces with the swing of his baseball bat. And then the soldier awakens, on a bus bound for Chicago in 1954. From that point on, a lot of the pilot is focused on the United States' racist history. Jim Crow laws, sundown towns, the stories of H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Rice Burroughs. At one point, a montage of three black people driving across the hostile terrain of the rural U.S. is set to an extended clip from James Baldwin's 1965 debate with William F. Buckley. I, um... I find myself, not for the first time, in um, the position of a kind of Jeremiah. For example, I don't disagree with Mr. Burford that the, um, the inequality suffered by the American Negro population of the United States has hindered the American dream. Indeed it has. I quarrel with some other things he has to say. The other deeper element of a certain awkwardness I feel has to do with um, it has to do with one's point of view I had to put it that way one's uh, one's sense of one's system of reality it would seem to me that the proposition before the house when I put it that way is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro all the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro is a question hideously loaded and that one's response to that question, or one's reaction to that question, 
has to depend on an effect on where you find yourself in the world, what your sense of reality is, what your system of reality is. That is, it depends on assumptions which we hold so deeply as to be scarcely aware of them. But as much as the show is about the very different realities experienced by black people and white people throughout U.S. history, the show is also about the future, about imagining alternate realities that challenge the country's racist history. One of the show's main characters is introduced as the only female member of the Southside Futurist Science Fiction Club. And like I said, Jackie Robinson smashes a massive alien to bits with a baseball bat. So it's a historical show, in a way, but it's also an Afrofuturist show. To be clear, I'm not making an original observation here. A number of black scholars and writers have already made that point. I just mention it here because I think it adds an important supplement to any speculations I might have about the digital future of rhetoric and composition. In a 1993 interview, black science fiction writer Samuel Delaney puts the situation faced by black Americans like this. The historical reason that we've been so impoverished in terms of future images is because, until fairly recently, as a people we were systematically forbidden any images of our past. As numerous artists inspired by Afrofuturism have pointed out, black people have already lived through the worst, supposedly speculative horrors of science fiction. Abducted by beings from another place, taken from their homes against their will, and enslaved in a strange, unfamiliar world. So Afrofuturism, the attempt to craft future images that center the cultures and histories of the African diaspora, isn't just some fanciful light-hearted enterprise. It is a response to the violent, coordinated erasure of black history. And, but, it's also a hopeful thing. In her 2013 essay, How Long Till Black Future Month, sci-fi author N.K. Jemisin contrasts her early experiences with the all-white future of the Jetsons with the predominantly black future brought to life in the music of Janelle Monet, much of which centers on a group of androids fighting for their freedom. As I write this, it's February, Black History Month in the United States. Everyone jokes that, of course, black history gets celebrated only during the shortest month of the year. No one seems puzzled by the fact that there is no time correspondingly devoted to examining celebrating, or imagining the black future. It's easy to look at something like Monet's mythos and see only the obvious metaphors. Her android's struggle for the freedom to love, after all, parallels the struggle of American slave women to legally marry partners of their choosing, to keep their children, to control their very bodies, in a system which made all of those things commodities. But it's wrong to apply only an historical and racial lens to the work of any modern black woman. We have spent generations sharing the struggles of other oppressed groups, collaborating with and occasionally being betrayed by them, and progressing nonetheless. We're the ones who literally wrote the book on intersectionality. And it's clear that Monet feels no sense of threat from the others with whom our future will be shared. She welcomes all with love and dancing. Now, I want to step carefully here. To a real and significant extent, I'm not the target audience for Afrofuturist art. That is, as important as it is for white people like me to be able to imagine black futures, I'm not the one whose history got erased. To some extent, I am surely still trapped in a history which I do not understand, as Baldwin describes the situation of white Americans. But the very real damage that white supremacy does to white people is obviously on a different, much smaller order of magnitude than it has done and continues to do to people of color. 
So I bring in Afrofuturism here not just as a source of hope, but as a gut check for the still unimaginably white field of rhetoric and composition. Because on one hand, the digital future of rhetoric and composition is now, happening, happened. It is, as I've said, this afternoon, tomorrow. It is trying to hold on to certain principles regarding our use of and theories about digital technologies in the midst of the kind of crisis that can overrun those principles. But it's not just about holding on. It's also about letting go in order to make room for other histories that can help us imagine other futures. So weirdly, the other part of the digital future of rhetoric and composition that I can wrap my head around is the distant future, the speculative future, the 1000 year future. One where we can learn, or I can learn, I hope, to welcome those with whom our future will be shared without feeling a sense of threat. This futuristic sci-fi vibe may seem detached from retcomp, which is in many appreciable ways a somewhat pragmatic field. But there is room, I think, for rhetorical and compositional activities that take our practical commitments to deliberating and writing about future policies and possibilities and infusing that as black rhetoricians and sci-fi authors have long done, with a commitment to imagining radical futures that resist a nostalgic attachment to the past. Could we be a discipline that tries to reimagine itself without fear of what we stand to lose, even as we acknowledge and seek to address the real professional and existential threats many among us face in the immediate future? Of course, I might be very, very wrong about all of this. Like I said at the start, the last year has not made me optimistic about my ability to offer bold proclamations about the future of anything. But here I am, trying, with all due pessimism and optimism, to keep imagining a better future and to do what I can to help it happen. 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 My art is a weapon! <laughs>